0: Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week we'll speak with Heather Digby-Parton about the debt limit deal that passed the House this week uh, and some other stuff. And then we'll be joined by journalist Evan Urquhart to talk about how the media's coverage of the far-right's fascistic moral panics about transgender people and really about the LGBTQ community writ large at this point helps... um, obscure the dangers posed by these campaigns and 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 kind of it makes, makes a cloud around what's going on so people can't get a clear sense uh, we have a lot to cover so i'm not going to do a very long intro this week but i, I just wanted to flag a couple of stories uh, back in 2009 so this is a while ago the department of homeland security issued a report warning that and i will quote Right-wing extremists will attempt to recruit and radicalize returning veterans in order to exploit their skills and knowledge derived from military training and combat. These skills and knowledge have the potential to boost the capabilities of extremists, including lone wolves or small terrorist cells, to carry out violence. Okay, this is in 2009. Uh, Now let me quote an article about what happened next. This is from USA Today. But the call to action was effectively buried after powerful Republican politicians and their allies in the right wing media launched broadsides against President Barack Obama's administration and Democrats, alleging that they had disrespected the men and women of the US military while attempting to surveil and silence conservatives. Not right wing extremists, not right wing extremists, conservatives. Um, The blowback shifted the debate away from how to actually address the threat and into another partisan public spectacle. Okay. Again, 2009. uh, The result ultimately was that then DHS chief Janet Napolitano uh, faced calls to step down from right-wingers, and she apologized for the report, and she vowed that DHS would never issue a similar one. Okay. Okay. So that was 12 years before a mob that had a disproportionate number of current and former military and police stormed the Capitol. Now, I want to quote from a recent CNN story. This was from two weeks ago. An early Biden administration initiative to root out extremism in the military was designed to identify people like Jack Teixeira, the 21-year-old national, Air National Guardsman with a long history of violent and racist behavior now accused of perpetrating one of the biggest leaks of classified documents in modern history. But more than two years after the Countering Extremism working group was formed inside the Pentagon, the effort has vanished virtually without a trace. Ooh, what happened, you might ask. The Pentagon largely abandoned the effort to combat extremism in its ranks as senior officials folded under political pressure from Republicans who lashed out at the initiative as an example of so-called wokism in the military. Okay, so plus such change, right? And okay, that story mentioned Jack Teixeira, the white supremacist who leaked a bunch of highly classified info to his, impress his friends on Discord. There's also news this week about a guy named Jordan Duncan, a real sweetheart. Uh, let me now quote Raw Story, which supports this show. A neo-Nazi Marine Corps veteran jailed for allegedly plotting to attack the power grid and commit acts of racial terror stands accused by the government of possessing classified Defense Department materials on a computer drive at the time of his arrest. So we have a very clear pattern, right? Any attempt to root out right-wing extremism is attacked by uh, one of our major parties, right, that calls it an attack on conservatives or an effort to silence conservatives. Um, and that's not just, of course, uh, in the military. They do this when the DHS comes out and says that, you know, white, white supremacist terror is, is white supremacist violence is our, our greatest terror threat, which they've said consistently for years. Um, and every time this happens, so Bright Bark squawks, Fox News squawks, and the government backs down under those attacks. And we keep having this problem. Again, both in the military and in society in general. Now, they're conflating, you know, right-wing extremists, violent right-wing extremists with conservatives is, of course, a tacit admission that extremism has gone mainstream on the right. But the effect is what matters, right? They're protecting potentially violent fascists. That that's what they're doing. And they do it again and again. And even though we have act of violence after act of violence after act of violence, and people being arrested for disseminating classified documents as well as, you know, plotting attacks, they just keep doing it. And with that happy news, uh, let's move on with the show. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with Heather Park. Doctor, look into my eyes I've been breathing air, but there's no sign of life Doctor, the problem's in my chest Welcome back. I am always pleased to speak with our next guest, Heather Parton, who you may know better as Digby, is a columnist at Salon, and she also writes at her own place, Digby's Hullabaloo. Heather, welcome back to We've Got Issues.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: Thanks for taking the time. Um, I guess the big story in DC politics this week was the passage in the house of a bill raising the debt ceiling through the end of 2024. You know, this is like the third or fourth time we've talked about this on the show, and I'm It's such a shame that like my audience even has to deal with this. It used to be so routine. You just lift the debt limit and it still is when there's a Republican in the white house. Um, anyway, this raises the debt ceiling through the end of 2024. So it's not something we're going to have to deal with again next year in the middle of a presidential election. It is expected to pass the Senate easily or relatively easily. Um, I am seeing pretty disparate reactions from the folks on our side. Um, I know nuance isn't popular in the social media outrage era but I'm thinking this might be a time for it. Your thoughts?
1: I agree with you on that. Um that nuance is definitely called for here. This was I mean I you know I take second place to no one who is critical of the Democrats handling of the debt ceiling when they were when they had the trifecta and they had all three uh, branches. Or to had the Congress and the presidency, and uh, both houses, because they should have dealt with it then. And you know, naturally, of course, you had to deal with people like Kirsten Cinema and and
2: uh, Joe Jeremy, Manchin.
1: And you know, this was it's complicated. But I still believe that they, there was a sense that I had at the time, and I, you and I may have actually even talked about this, that there was a sense at the time. That they that the Democrats were kind of being cavalier about it and saying, "Well, you know, the Republicans will get blamed if we have to go through this." So it's really, you know, almost as if they kind of wanted it, thought it would be a political plus for them to allow this thing to happen—not the default necessarily, but the debt, debt ceiling, um, you know, crisis that was about to come. So I, I was I was very disappointed that they didn't at least push it harder, at least prepare the public for what was going to happen. When these you know crazy wing nuts took power um in the in the you know during the lame duck period, having said that, considering that they did that and that this is what happened, uh, you know, I'm of the school, and maybe I'm you know kind of out of step with my progressive friends, but I think it was about the best you could hope for under the circumstances, and the Democrats didn't get anything out of it except for one very important thing. They got that delay that you mentioned in having to deal with it. In the year of a of a presidential election, and that was a very very you know serious uh, plus, and one that I think um, I'm not sure that I expected they'd be able to do that. So, you know, I'm of the feeling that that you know it went as well as possible, and it's you know it's interesting to analyze how that happened, that it went as well as it did, because I'm honestly surprised. I did not expect it to happen the way that it happened.
0: Yeah. And okay, I I want to I want to just continue with that. So his team so we were all squawking. This is the and so this is the um this this is during the Dame, lame duck session, uh Democrats had an opportunity they held the house. They could have passed a reconciliation bill in the Senate with 51 votes to just take the debt limit off of the off the table. And we were all squawking about why they didn't do that. And yes, it was it was mansion and cinema, But it was also that Joe Biden didn't put a lot of uh, political capital into that. He didn't push the issue. And the Biden team had its typical like low, qu- low key. Um, we've got this attitude. They predicted that they'd win such a fight. Uh, and I just wonder if we need to acknowledge that the White House has a very experienced team uh, many of whom have been through a number of these fights during the Obama years and learned some hard lessons actually, and actually do know how to work the levers of power. You know, well, I
1: to, I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: No, uh, I just, I try to be humble about these things and it it seems like they, they, they are constantly exceeding my expectations in a very quiet way.
1: It's true. And I agree with you. I mean, I, I do kind of, you know, I feel like we should be acknowledging the fact that they seem to, get a lot of stuff done with much less sort of, you know, sturm and drong than we might, you know, than we've come to expect Um, it it, much less so than what we found in the, in the Obama years. And granted, you know, circumstances are different. There's a whole different set of, of, you know, in, in the opposition is different. I don't think they're very bright over there on the house. House And they're divided. Yeah. And they're divided and, you know, there's, there are a lot of things going on there. So, you know, it's not really fair to compare, but I agree with you They they do seem to get through these things without, you know, without a whole lot of, of, you know, necessity for rending of garments on the democratic side, which really surprises me. Now that's something that I, I don't think I expected either. Um, yeah. but, you know, but for whatever reason, and maybe it's just the looming threat of the 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 right right now that keeps the the Democrats more or less united on these things, but it is a, it is a little bit unusual, at least in my in the experience of my lifetime, in in politics to see that happen. So you know, I I was I, I'm again I I did not expect this to come out the way that it did, and I was predicting not so much that I thought that the Biden people wouldn't do pretty well in a deal. I mean, I thought that. I mean, we all had worries about Biden because we had learned from the 2011 deal that he had really kind of messed things up in the At least yeah. that's, a, you know, maybe it's a myth. I don't know. But that is, you know, our understanding of what happened in 2011 was that Biden stepped in and actually kind of, you know, he he, you know, Caused a, a real problem with the deal that Harry Reid, the the majority leader at the time, had come up with. And and there was a lot that's always been sort of the the reputation that Biden was a little, you know, claudish in these in these negotiations. Yeah. Uh, Maybe that's wrong. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I did worry about that. And I think a lot of people worried about it. But, you know, th- I didn't think that they were going to, you know, give away Social Security or something. I had enough faith in them that they wouldn't do that. It's the Republicans that surprised me because my experience with the with the um, the Freedom Caucus or the Tea Party or whatever it is that they're calling themselves these days, the far right group, which is a very large and you know very, very vociferous faction in the House uh, Republican Caucus and has been at least since 2010, 2009, 2010, um, that they were just not going to go along with anything so i I, and which you know they didn't in in effect
0: Uh, for the the most part they did the
1: most part they 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 you know they put up a fight and they said oh yeah this is terrible whatever but they didn't pull the trigger at least they haven't yet and we don't see any reason the trigger the the gun they loaded when they when they went through that speaker battle that they had which was that they could raise a motion to vacate the chair which would be to bring um, the speakership up for a vote and put Kevin McCarthy on the hot seat. And since he has such a small margin, which I think is what, five that he, he can afford to lose, four or five, I, all it would take is just a very a small handful of Republicans to vote against him. And they would have to go through a whole new speakership you yeah. know, battle. So that was hanging out there. And I, I was, I am frankly, and still surprised that they didn't do that over this deal because they really thought they you know, they had the moon. And I, I'm really reassessing my sense of what they are about on the basis of this because I had just assumed that this would be a great chance for them to show their people that they were just going to shake up Washington and, you know, what do they call it? Deconstruct the administrative state or do whatever it is that they want to do. And they didn't do it and haven't done it other than putting up sort of a token fight over it. And you know, I have a few ideas about why that might be. I think one of them is is that I think McCarthy has been uncharacteristically deft at co opting these people. You know he took marjorie taylor green off the off the table back before the speakership race, and you know she's sort of the de facto voice of the far right i think in the in the Congress, and he's got Matt Gates sort of acting like he's the The, you know, elder statesman, kind of the mediator of the group, and he took Tom Massey, who's also nuts, he put him on the rules committee. I mean, he did some pretty smart things. And all that's happened is, is that he's given them, you know, free reign to do whatever they want. Other than something like this, right? You've got Marjorie Taylor Greene out there just being a nut at every committee hearing. You've got that they all are. You know, Jim Jordan, all he's doing is you know doing his performative Biden, you know, perform. and he so he's allowed them to do all of that. Not that maybe he could stop them, but he has he has enabled them in many ways to, to to maintain their high profile, which sort of indicates I think that that what we're dealing with is something that sort of Chris Hayes has been talking about. He wrote a piece for the Atlantic. A a while back um that you know there they, the economic issues are no longer salient to to the right or they've lost touch with the fact that the economic issues are sort of stand-ins for their culture war preference. They're just full on culture war. That is all they really care about. You know, they care about boycotting Target and Chick Fil A over over Pride Week and or Pride Month and and you know things like diversity training and stuff like that. That's what they care about. Or going after Hunter Biden or you know ginning up some kind of other investigative controversy. You know, sending a contempt of Congress you know notice to to. Christopher Wray, the, the director of the FBI, that's the kind of stuff they want to do. And so all the rest of this can kind of you know slide through without the kind of without them realizing that that's what they, where their real clout is. You know what I mean? I mean, they, they just don't seem very in touch with how to use real congressional power to attain anything because they don't want to attain anything. It's they don't just, want to govern. It's just they have no interest in power. governing. Yeah,
0: it's just owning the libs and getting on Fox. Exactly. Or na- exactly. Now, get, maybe getting on Newsmax is more important but than getting Matt, on Fox. Matt Gates is hosting sure. a show on Newsmax.
1: Now, so. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> uh, I think he was he was guest hosting for that crazy mm. Jesse, whatever his name is. Oh,
1: that's right.
0: Um, I think part of it, though was the reality like so what they were doing is saying oh well we won't actually cause a global recession and trigger like a, a catastrophic debt limit you know debt breach that raises borrowing costs and increases the deficit they said that's all you know liberal media claptrap but i think on some level uh they knew that that was not true so they were going to be holding the bag if there was a bipartisan agreement and uh, you could put that in finger quotes if you want Uh, But I mean, it was a bipartisan agreement to avert a catastrophe and then the dead and then it it died because of their intransigence and the dead cat lay at their door. Uh, That was not going to work out well for them. And, you know, one assumes that as crazy as they are, they have some advisors who like read economists and stuff like that. And I I think we should take a little step back here because we're being very insidery. Yeah, yeah. I want I want listeners who don't pay super close attention to this stuff to just understand that Um, the Republican House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, got a freeze in non-defense discretionary spending at current levels through the end of next year. They clawed back some unused COVID funds. They rejiggered the formula for work requirements for SNAP, for food stamps, um, and all of that is about what you might have expected that they would get if they hadn't held the debt ceiling hostage or the global economy hostage, I should say, and had just gone through the regular budget process. They would have won some things in the budget process. This is the kind of things they would have won. Um, Dems, in addition to avoiding a recession prior to a presidential election, got to give the hard right House members we were just talking about a big loss, which they are all crying about. Um and uh, by the way in the way the work requirements for snap were structured it'll actually increase spending on on food security um so then the, the so then the the, ne- the negative side and this is a big one is that by negotiating with the republicans after saying they wouldn't uh biden and his negotiators uh further legitimize this form of extortion although i would say that it's the media that are the the biggest culprit in that process of normalizing it. Um, And, and so let's go back to Kevin McCarthy, as you just mentioned during the, you know, he needed a, a zillion votes to get the speakership. He promised the wingnut caucus, a bunch of stuff, including a provision that allows any GOP member to trigger a no confidence vote in a speakership. As you said, that isn't happening. There was a lot of bluster from pissed off MAGA types, but looks like he's safe for now. And I think this deal kind of shores up his speakership in the short run. What I wanted to know is what you think about how it, how it affects him in the long run. He's really aggravated a very significant, you know, faction within his his coalition. Uh, Does this give him less wiggle room or more?
1: Well, it's a really good question. And I don't know the answer to that. I would have said before this week, (laughs) <laughs> that it would give him less clout that he'd be really, you know, walking a tight, even, even smaller tightrope than he was before. Um, because he, you know, th- they were, you know, they're going to be out for blood. I mean, but I'm not quite so sure about that. Having watched this one come down, I mean, part of yeah. it has to do, and we haven't mentioned the big, you know, orange elephant in the room, who's Donald Trump, who has the endorsement of over 50 of these people in the, in the house. And he didn't he didn't weigh in on this issue after May 19th. You know, we saw him on that CNN town hall going on about, hey, you're going to have to default and it won't be a big deal. You know, I mean, he was taking a very, very hard line. You got to ask for everything, including the kitchen sink. You know, let it go. Let it default. I mean, he was being really, really hardcore. And then suddenly he never said another word after May 19th. I have I have to assume. And he and basically hasn't said a word about it even now. I think he went on a radio show yesterday and said something like, well, it is what it is, you know, a very, very kind of noncommittal shrugging it off. And it, so you have to wonder what happened there, right? Because he's the de facto leader of the Republican, certainly of the Republican base. And the the far right of the Republican Party at the moment. Um, yeah. And and so you have to wonder what happened there. And I have to assume that in this case, you know, maybe we have to give McCarthy credit on this, too. Maybe he has managed somehow through his, you know, sycophancy with Donald Trump over the last couple of years since he left office and, you know, after he went and made up with him down in Mar-a-Lago after the January 6th insurrection, that, you know, he may have had some effect on him, you know, kind of said. I mean, it's hard to imagine anybody could say to Donald Trump, you know, hey, you know, cool it. Don't say anything. We're in negotiations. Or maybe it's just that, you know, it occurred to me that maybe Trump has suddenly realized that being he's been on the losing end of a lot of battles lately. And, you know, from the election, there are issues that, you know, every time he weighs in, it seems like he's isn't doing that well. So now that he's in the thick of this um this presidential campaign maybe it occurred to him that maybe he ought to you know lay out a little bit and it, it, when it at least when it comes to these congressional battles because they're very hard to predict and he may have recognized that i don't know uh, all i know is is that that's what happened and that took one big piece of the of the you know the game off the board when when Donald Trump stopped talking about it and, you know, sort of maybe allowed Kevin McCarthy to have a little bit more room. So to answer your question, I don't know whether this strengthens McCarthy or weakens him. I do know they still have that threat is hanging out there and it will be there through this whole Congress. As long as he's Speaker, that's going to be hanging over his head. So yeah. it, they're always they always have that, you know, and maybe that's really all they need. To keep him in line, knowing that it's there, that he's, you know, that he he will never stray too far from from what they want. I mean, I, you know, I have to admit, I mean, this deal, I really thought they were going to have to take a real pound of flesh in order to get through this. Yeah. Or or else, you know, or or Kevin was going to have to fall on his sword and and lose his speakership over it. I, I really thought that, j- that just.
0: just do a clean clean debt limit with democrats
2: yeah he was
1: going to have to put it on the on the on the floor and let let you know (laughs) let it let it go but you know that didn't happen so i'm i'm you know i'm having to adjust my perceptions a bit of what's going on there
0: again i hate to be so wonky i just want to mention one thing and we're going to move on Uh, this deal also made a shutdown later in the year or next year uh less likely um it has Mm -hmm. a provision again obscure wonky provision Has this provision that requires all 12 appropriation committees to complete their work before the end of the next fiscal year or spending would automatically continue in 2024 with a 1% cut to both military and non-defense spending. So the idea is to incentivize both sides to actually get their shit together and govern, and it would avoid a shutdown battle, which is, I think, another big win. For, yes. the, like, just my sanity, if nothing else.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and for, our, uh, for the audience's sanity of having to listen to this again. <laughs> yeah, <exactly.
2: laughs>
0: uh, okay, so um, I'm going to once again kind of violate my rule to not cover the presidential contest until it begins in earnest, but only to talk about the field, the GOP field that is shaping up. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Uh, and Mike Pence are expected to throw their hats into the ring, I think, this week or next week. Heather, who do they think they can appeal to as, you know, right wingers who have warred openly with Trump?
1: I do not know. I mean, I, I honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess. Who you are know, there? Yeah, what is who? who, What's the constituency here? You know, you know, I I just don't get it. I mean, take Mike Pence for instance. Who does who is going to vote for that guy? I just don't understand who it could be. Even people who hate Trump also hate Mike Pence for being his, you know, the 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 sycophant of the decade, you know, and and people who. Who love Trump, of course, hate him. Uh, who in the Republican Party wants Mike Pence to be president, and yet he's. I mean, going it's to a little.
0: Him. It's a little slice of the evangelical base, right? There's a I slice guess, of the evangelical. They really,
1: base. you know, they love the evangelical. But they love it's Trump. A tiny slice. They love yeah, most slice. of them really really love Trump. I mean that's yes. kind of been one of Trump's big advantages is having that evangelical base. And you know, I mean I just I just don't see it. Chris Christie's going to come in. He's just I think he's he's perceiving himself as a hero who's going to come in and be the wrecking ball that's going to go after Donald Trump and somehow that's going to make the difference. Not recognizing that the truth is is that at least when it comes to the nomination, I mean he might damage him for the general, I guess, maybe although I don't know. I think Trump's self-inflicted damage will do whatever yeah. is necessary. Um, but he, you know, he's he he's going to come in there and go after Trump. I mean, that's going to be his job. I get the sense maybe that Christie just likes doing that. You know, so this is just going to be fun for him because there's no fear. <laughs> nobody's going to nobody's going to vote for this guy. I mean, that's not going to happen. Yeah, and then he doesn't even know,
0: have a slice of the evangelical base. He not does nothing. not even have that. <laughs> no, a slice
1: of nothing. I mean, there's nothing out there. And then you know, if if he
0: if he bought you a piece of pizza in New Jersey, maybe you'll vote for him. That's his. That's about it. Yeah,
1: that's one one, one guy. (laughs) In New Jersey for a Joey. Joey because Bottoms he got of, a slice
0: of pizza, <laughs> a slice of pizza. <laughs> he's got my vote <laughs> yeah very er- erdogan-esque um, <laughs> i mentioned last week that one reason seemingly long shot candidates might want to run is that trump may be facing multiple criminal trials next year right. and desantis has a glass jaw and isn't a very good politician so i can understand South Carolina Senator Tim Scott and Nikki Haley running for the VP with the idea that, Oh, maybe that'll become the top of the ticket. Who knows? Maybe. Because as everybody else implodes, but when you talk about Pence and Christie, like they're not going to get the vice presidency either. So it just, uh, it's just really uh, it's flummoxing. Um, having said that, Is it surprising to you that this is shaping up to be another crowded field, given that the conventional wisdom, which I think is right in this case, holds that Trump only won in 2016, thanks to a big fractured crowd of candidates? Because, I mean, it looks like, you know, much of the GOP establishment, whatever that means at this point, because a lot of them are crazy, would like to move on from Trump because of his baggage. But that's, of course, less likely if you have a big clown car full of wingnuts dividing the not Trump vote.
1: Well and and one of the things that I don't think people are talking about, but it's it's a very important aspect of this is that is that Trump, you know, through the, the RNC, the Republican National Committee, went in and they changed a bunch of these states to win or take all states. It was seven in twenty sixteen. It's seventeen now out of out of out of all the states in the primaries. So that gives Trump's a tremendous Trump a tremendous advantage because he really does I think everyone acknowledges that he has a very solid hardcore base in there. That's just, you know, there it's a cult, right? They're not going to change. I don't care who runs. They they're going to vote for Trump. So the best anybody could hope for would be that, you know, they drop a bunch of them drop out and then it becomes a two man or, you know, one man one woman race. And they can go forward and eke out a win, right? Eke out a delegate win, and that's going to be made, that's been made much more difficult because of the fact that they changed it to more winner take all states. It's not like the Democrats where you really can't fight all the way to the end, right? And you know then see who's the victor is. The the Republicans do it differently, and so that's part of the weirdness of this. That you know why would people jump in there? I mean, I have to assume honestly that what they're thinking is a he's either going to drop dead on the golf course and you know some whoever's there will you know the leader at that point or maybe as you say if it's the nominee if the nominations already been done and they're the vp left standing or one of these indictments is going to end up taking him down i think the indictment theory is as much of a the indictment theory of taking him down is as much of a, you know, a pipe dream probably as his, as him dropping dead on the golf course. You know, these, this is, hope is not a plan. And I don't think that either of those things are going to actually, I mean, Trump will be damaged by an indictment, but there's plenty of evidence to think that that will just gather his people together. I mean, this could really end up being a real I don't want to call it a constitutional crisis because it isn't constitutional, but a political yeah, no.
0: crisis. You just have to govern from jail. That's all.
1: I mean, yeah. What do we what do? We do? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, he won't be the first. I mean, you know, Eugene V. Debs. He he ran for for president. Um, you know, as a as a you know an indicted criminal. Um, maybe maybe he could do that, but I you know I don't think it would hurt him with the report.
0: I'll tell you the way the way I could see it hurting him is indirectly, where, you know, his opponents within the primaries are just saying he's gonna lose the election. Look, he's being indicted on all these charges. And it, depending on the seriousness of the charges, I certainly don't think that would happen if it's the false records case in New York. But if it's a espionage act violation and obstruction and blah, 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 whatever's going on in Atlanta, um, I think that's a powerful argument for not only his opponents, but for GOP elites to say, hey, we love Trump, too, but he's going to get he's going to be toast in the general. And although the base seems to be less sensitive to arguments about elective electability than they used to be, that's a pretty big one. That's a pretty big one. It's Heather, big, but i don't I've, you
1: know honestly i think they don't care <laughs> they yeah they'll be fine with it but hey i've been wrong before yeah
0: <laughs> yeah it's all going to be uncharted territory and i must say that i'm um, um between now and and then between now and it getting started in earnest as dumb and annoying as the gop primaries are and crazy as the gop primaries are guaranteed to be I think we will have a lot of like pop popcorn mode moments as Trump and DeSantis battle. Back oh, no doubt. That's, there's lots of stupid proxy fights already going on. We're going to be talking
1: I'm, about swims tucking, swim tucking swimsuits. Tucking swimsuits. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Heather, I believe we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to talk about all that stuff with target and boycotts. Stick to it.
1: Water's rising, and is freaking me out, man. You're all lying, man, is freaking me out. Poison fishes, and they freaking me out, man. They're so delicious, and it's freaking
0: Welcome back. I'm joined now by Evan Urquhart. It is Evan's first time on the show, but I followed his reporting at outlets like Slate for a while. He writes a what we used to call a blog, I guess, called Assigned Media, which focuses on the extreme challenges facing transgender people in America at present, and you can and should read that at assignedmedia.org, not .com. Evan, welcome to We've Got Issues.
2: Hey, thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for taking the time. Um, Right wingers often claim that they are just concerned for the children to legitimize their attacks on transgender people uh, and their families and supporters and, and health care providers. How is that claim holding up in the wake of the recent moral panics over um, Bud Light doing a single promotion with an adult trans influencer named Dylan Mulvaney and the recent freak out over Target carrying certain LGBTQ merch for Pride Month?
2: It's pretty troubling how far this has all gone. Um, The Bud Light situation, Dylan Mulvaney's original sin was that she asked Joe Biden whether the state should be allowed to ban gender-affirming care for youth. Um, That was the thing that really got her on the uh, right-wing radar, and now just Bud Light doing a 30-second Instagram-only little spot with her is enough for people to be calling in bomb threats, um, you know, threatening, um, you know, the breweries. And Bud Light really backed away from having worked with Dylan Mulvaney, who, again, didn't do anything um, in the light of that you know, terrorism campaign against Yeah, them. yeah. And so smelling, you know, blood in the water, now they have moved on to Target. Um, Target also didn't do anything. Uh, they have a pride line of merchandise that has existed for a long time. Um they kind of keyed in on one of those items uh which was a bathing suit for trans women which has a little bit of extra fabric and extra support which like sort of facilitates um tucking which is you know just uh facilitates their being comfortable in a swimming environment and um the right wing claimed that there were swimsuits for kids that allowed this this again would have been a if it existed, a swimsuit for kid with a bit of extra fabric and a, and a tighter, um, you know, front piece or whatever. Um, and even though that's been sort of exposed as a lie, the idea that swimsuits with extra fabric are existing where kids can see them in stores is now the kind of central... Of that, and um, they're kind of moving on to Belk and to Lego and to any company, you know, that has any kind of rainbow merchandise is being seen as um, as dangerous to children, uh, sort of just for having any kind of pride messages at this point.
0: And one of the most surprising ones is there is also calls to boycott Chick-fil-A, which many people <laughs> on the left have long avoided because of its owner's uh, very public opposition to same-sex marriage. Uh, Evan, I invited you on to talk about the media coverage of these extremist campaigns, but we always try to keep in mind that our listeners may not be very online as they say. So thank you for the summary of what's going on here, uh, what the reality is. Um, I also wanna take a moment to be very clear about something here because of the nature of today's right with its penchant for threats, harassment, uh, and acts of violence. A call to boycott a company like Target or chick fil or whatever, Bud Light, fueled by disinformation about why that is, is a guarantee of people associated with those companies being targeted, right? That's really important for people to understand. When you say boycott, um, they know what they're going to get when they call on on, on their people to, to boycott Um, and Evan, bear with me. You're the guest. I also want to just stress that this is an inorganic campaign being pushed by a few, uh, far right social media influencers. And as always, they are quite open about this. Um, Matt Walsh, the transphobic, transphobic, homophobic, bigoted piece of shit podcaster. (laughs) I think that's an accurate description. No
2: not nice man yep
0: (laughs) wrote on twitter back in april uh i believe this was as the bud light controversy was brewing Uh, no no pun intended he wrote quote here's what we should do pick a victim gang up on it and make an example of it we can't boycott every woke company or even most of them but we can pick one it hardly matters which and target it with a ruthless boycott campaign Claim one scalp, then move on to the next. Here again, you get violent language. There is no such thing as a ruthless boycott campaign. It's a ruthless campaign of bomb threats, wingnuts harassing store workers, etc. Um, Evan, I, I, you know, a company like Target is just trying to make money, and it does need to protect its employees from these crazies. Does backing down and Target remove some items, I guess, uh, does backing down accomplish that in your view? Does it, does it protect its employees?
2: You know, so yeah, so Target removed some items and they moved some of the displays to the back of the store. Um, And I think that, you know, I, I really think that you're honing in on the most important point, which is that they really need the violence and the threats and the harassment of staff because they don't have, you know, numbers or popular support. And, um, you know, I think that's what's kind of shaking these brands and, and frightening them. And, you know, I was trying to think about it when I was thinking about coming on and talking about this with you, you know, if, if LGBTQ people had, you know, we're going into Christian bookstores, throwing stuff on the store, calling in bomb threats. We would call that a terrorism campaign. And if the stores backed down, we would see it as, you know, a terrible example of violence. And I, you know, I do not, you know, think anyone should do this, you know, this imaginary thing. of yeah, harassing no, we're not encouraging that. stop owners, you know, yeah. because it's wrong. And so the media coverage has really, has really downplayed the fact that these are companies responding to fear and threats and bomb threats. And, and so, you know, I would like for Target to, um, you know, to stand up, I think it would probably create a safer environment for Target employees in the, you know, in the long term, it would certainly create a safer environment for LGBTQ people in the long term. But I think that this downplaying of the violence and the fear and sort of Um, covering that over with words like controversy and backlash is kind of hurting people's ability to see what's really, you know, going on here, which is that, you know, that people are scared and that they're reacting the way scared people do. And sometimes that's backing down.
0: Yeah. And I I, want to key in on you, you're saying long term, right? Because the thing that I think is apparent to me is that on the one hand, I get that these companies are like, oh, man, we need to quiet, quiet, these scary people. And the other hand, when you capitulate to this kind of terror campaign, this kind of harassment, intimidation campaign, you encourage more of it. And here you have Matt Walsh just saying, we'll pick one and we'll go to the next one. If they picked one, you know, you got to stand up to a bully. You got to punch him in the nose, uh, metaphorically speaking. Okay. Let's talk about a piece you wrote last week. This is why I wanted to have you on the show. It's at Assigned Media. It's titled Media Avoids Terror to Describe Violent Campaign Against Pride displays. Um Back in the day, I wrote several pieces with this kind of media analysis. You basically looked at a bunch of mainstream outlets coverage and drew certain conclusions about the angles they were taking. Can you talk a little bit about what you found?
2: Yeah, so it can be really difficult. Um, and I've been trying to find creative new ways to talk about it when the media isn't saying something as opposed to, only talking about what the words people are using are. So um, for this, I kind of, you know, I I kind of did a bunch of Google news searches. I, you know, was not able to be totally exhaustive, but just looked at, you know, how many results am I getting for target pride and terrorism versus like target pride and controversy. And what I found was that outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post, we're using this language of sort of controversy and, um, you know, and backing away from words like violence, words like terrorism, words like threats. I mean, to sort of, you know, the, the the reference to what was really going on was kind of very much being downplayed. And I do think part of that was echoing the language of the corporations Um of Target and of Bud Light earlier, but you know the job of the media is to report what's going on, not to yes. take the corporate language that's kind of trying to calm everyone down and sort of present, you know, their store as a safe place to be, and sort of deny and and you know sweep under the rug the fact that like there are there are, there are threats, there's violence that people are afraid of that is motivating this.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and we have had, you know, one thing that I hate is like sometimes you'll see some very extreme rhetoric from someone on the right. And then some other commentator will say, somebody's going to get killed. Many people have already been killed, right? We've had mass shootings directly tied to trans panic, to LGBT, uh, hate. It's very direct. There many people have already been killed. Um, and and this is it. It We see st- stuff like what we're talking about in many other ways. Like, why would you call people who are extreme right wingers conservative? There's nothing conservative about, you know, any of this. I will say that I would not expect a neutral mainstream outlet to call this a terror campaign, but they can call it an extremist campaign. Um, And I want to talk about some more subtle problems with how many or most reporters choose to describe what's happening. You talked in the piece about the idea that there is a live controversy here. To, to what degree do you think that obscures the contours, the contours of what's going on? And to what degree does it subtly validates uh, validate the rights um, narrative that a so-called trans ideology exists?
2: I mean, if you look at what actually has happened, um, the GOP... Seized on transgender issues as their new wedge issue. Um, they have been writing anti-trans uh, screeds for you know for many months now, since you know well before the midterms. And you know that that is sort of fueling this. You know, calling it a controversy or calling it a backlash is sort of is sort of obscuring what the roots of this are. This wasn't sort of a grassroots concern. There's no sort of legitimate fears or worries this is sort of a decision of a major you know political party and movement in the united states to target a minority to drum up fear and to drum up hate you know for electoral purposes and i do think that you know the mainstream might not (laughs) sort of put it in those words but i think letting people like actually informing people you need to sort of talk to them about like what are the numbers here what is causing this and You know, when you use words like controversy, it sort of implies an organic and a real nature to this that I don't think really, really holds up if you look at what's, you know, what's actually gone on.
0: And I just want to just add to that, like the idea that there's a trans ideology. I mean, Mm -hmm. what we have here is trans people trying to live lives without being victims of violence, right, or discrimination, and minding their own business and being under assault, um, and, and so when you when you say, "Oh, there's a a controversy here," there's a, that says, "Okay, maybe there is an ideology because you have a political dispute, right?" So you have ideology, anti-trans ideology, and pro-trans ideology. Now, the reality of that is you have people being like, "I don't want to be killed," and others saying, "We want you to be killed." Basically. Um, and i and i also just want to note how interesting it is that the assault on transgender people was the new wedge issue because of the growing acceptance of gays and lesbians and then once that got rolling they kind of backtracked and said oh we also hate gays and lesbians again
2: so oh yeah not... no the the wedge is coming for cisgender women and for you know all lgbtq people but especially you know cisgender gays and lesbians. I mean, I think that yeah. the assault on people's ability to get health care, the assault on sort of the idea of allowing medical evidence to determine health care is, um, it's not coincidental and it's not going to stop at gender affirming care for kids. Um, yes. there's, <clears throat> there's a sort of precedent that's being created where they're going to you know try it out on a group that you know, that people don't, I think mainstream people often don't really know that much about trans people. They sort of don't understand that transition is an evidence-based medical practice that is associated with much better outcomes that's kind of been established over many decades. There's kind of this feeling like maybe this is new, maybe we don't understand this, maybe this is a political controversy. And, you know, that's extremely dangerous for trans people trying to live their lives but it's also really dangerous for everyone else who are going to get this your birth control is isn't backed by high quality studies stuff in you know in a couple of months it's been moving faster than i i thought things were going to break bad it's been moving faster than i have anticipated so I, i i don't expect it to take long before you start seeing that kind of attack on you know on people's on sort of the the underlying idea that you know medical evidence should be um should be weighed rather than extreme religious ideas, or that you know that trans people existing in public are a danger to tr- children. I mean this is of course you know the exact same thing they said about gay people, gay teachers when I was growing up in you know yeah. in the 80 s and 90s, and they're yeah. bringing it back really fast and it is it is certainly not going to be confined unfortunately um, to the trans community.
0: Yeah. And let me just pause here to say, once again, as we've mentioned many times on this show, um, especially when, you, when you're talking about children, it's, it's not like there is a big lie out there, which is that permanent changes are permanent therapies or gender affirming therapies are being used on children. Also that they're being encouraged to um, undergo permanent changes. And that's just absolute bullshit. So they're, you know, the the most common gender affirming care for underage people is hormone pu- puberty blockers, basically, which delays the onset of puberty, so you don't have secondary sex characteristics, and that's entirely reversible. So you know,
2: and yeah. intended to be. That's that's the entire purpose yes, of it is to exactly it's reversible delay it's more p- permanent or at least more difficult to reverse changes, because you know even with hormone therapy. Um, you know, the permanency has been greatly exaggerated, as every trans person knows, because yes. we undergo the process when we transition as adults and have already gone through um, all of the pubertal changes. So, you know, none right. of this is irreversible, irreversible, except some surgeries that are, are very much not, um, you know. Done on to, people to, under to 18. Yeah,
0: they're yeah. no, no, not being done on children. Okay, I want to get, I, so I'm going a little over on time. Is that okay? Do you have another few <laughs> it's minutes? It's fine
2: by me. I I'm, I'm I feeling one guilty question. But I, <laughs> yeah, got one more question.
0: It one more so i wanted to get your take on another and this is really ubiquitous a really ubiquitous term that you see all the time in the coverage of this stuff the culture wars um i don't see groups of people on the left hanging out with ar-15s outside like evangelical churches or whatever but that has become commonplace outside drag brunches and story hours or whatever. Um, hospitals that offer gender affirming care are getting death threats. They're, they've had to close down. Um, and I'm always reading pieces and I'm thinking to myself, shit, if you probably replace culture war with fascism in this paragraph, it would be <laughs> a lot clearer. Just everything would be clearer. What do you think about kind of this very lazy uh, term culture war catch all for all this stuff
2: I mean I think that it is something of an artifact of a slightly earlier time when it was seen as you know that's that's the fluff that's the not you know that's the not serious issue um and you know what we should really be focusing on is is all of the kind of more important more central issues um, and I think we've kind of moved to a point where our democracy is all but incapable of focusing on the more serious, more important issues. Um, and culture war is, is everything all the time. And it's also kind of, as, as you're alluding to, it's, it's kind of becoming a hot culture war more so than a cold culture war with, you know, um, guns and intimidation and threats and stuff so in, in some ways it's more apt than others and in other ways it's kind of a hearkening back to a time when culture war was used to sort of dismiss the idea that someone asking for their rights was a serious person who should be sort of seriously entertained and that like all of that was sort of silly and fluffy and we could just ignore it
0: yeah and again i just want to stress you can't have a war with just one side and only one side is at war on this, that everybody else is just trying to get through it. Um, we've talked in the Absolutely. past on the show about how like big media outlets like the New York times legitimize the rights attacks on trans people by uh, acting as if you can have an active policy debate about people's existence. And I, I'm glad that we had an opportunity to dig into kind of the slightly less obvious aspects of this coverage. It's important to understand what's going on and and how the media is playing a role in in whitewashing it. Evan Urquhart, I believe we are about out of time, but I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Folks, check out Evan's work at assignedmedia.org. Also, listen, whether you are gay or straight or whatever, you should consider going to a a pride event this weekend just to show these bigots that we have the numbers. I'm I'm going to a parade on Sunday and I encourage listeners to do the same in their own backyard. Heck yeah. I would also like to thank David Edwards, our producer and engineer and the fine folks at alternate and raw story for supporting the show. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me now on blue sky, uh, Joshua Holland, uh, and Mastodon Those are where I'm at right now Anyway I also want to thank all of you fine people For tuning in Have a terrific week
1: and